Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We are live right now and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 27th of February. Coming up, a former Gauteng Premier on the ANC's pre-election misfortune. Is the electricity minister's load-shedding optimism justified? Can South Africa realistically broaden its tax base? How big is the Zuma factor in the KwaZulu-Natal election dynamic? And is sport a GDP growth factor in South Africa? Well, he is paid to say it, but the electricity minister, Josienzo Ramachope, is remarkably upbeat about the power situation in South Africa, saying breakdowns at ESCOM's aging power stations are declining. So the question is, can we keep the lights on longer? Here now is Jose Moleshe, who's an energy analyst. And first up then, what specific factors can be attributed to this improvement if in fact there has been one? What's your view? So there is, there has been an improvement, and the improvement can be attributed to some of the units, Kusile uh, three units that have been brought back on stream. However, these have been offset by the fact that ESCOM has increased a lot of the planned maintenance. So although the breakdowns, the outages that are not planned have been reduced, they have now tried to increase significantly the amount of maintenance that they do. So that's why we we don't feel it as much as we should. So that I agree with him. So the planned maintenance that you talk about, that's a good thing, right? It is a good thing in the long run, yes, it, it is a good thing. Uh, I mean, it has been in the past averaging about 3,000 megawatts. We've now seen over 7,000 megawatts, 8,000 megawatts, up to 9,000 at some point. So that is a good thing, and they're really very consistent now with it. The key question, of course, then, is how sustainable this process and these improvements are, particularly in the context of the aging infrastructure and the ongoing financial difficulties that ESCOM is facing. So uh, the minister did mention that some of the money that has been coming from Treasury has helped them to be able to, to do this maintenance now, and they're getting support from business So we hope that they sustain this uh, momentum. What would be great for load shedding in particular would be to have additional capacity outside of ESCOM. That would be a buffer for ESCOM to be able to continue to do what they do so that at least we can see reliability going on. It's interesting that in terms of... uh, the, the biggest power stations that are having issues are not necessarily the oldest. But yeah, I take your point that some of the older ones eventually will have problems. The problem, of course, is the speed at which we're bringing additional capacity onto the grid. 
Yes, that is the problem because ESCOM should be, in other countries, you have reserve or standby capacity to allow for the maintenance to take place because ESCOM operates within such a tight system where supply and demand are almost equal or sometimes demand outstrips supply. They are not necessarily in a good position to be able to do what they need to do. So typically you have additional capacity to cater for that, but we d- we don't, unfortunately. And uh, the projects that are supposed to be coming on stream are taking long. He alluded to the fact that in some of the renewable energy projects, you have transmission constraints, and they are looking at different solutions for that. that but that's long-term. That's post-2028. Let's look at the concept called the EAF, or the Electricity Availability Factor. It's declined from 54.71% in 2023 to 51.57% uh, in the first seven weeks of 2024. This is despite the maintenance efforts that we've just been talking about. What does this mean? Mean then in terms of the target of 65% EAF by the end of March? That, that would seem at this point, if you look at that trajectory, to be almost impossible. So the initially ESCOM had anticipated that they would have 60% availability of their plants versus the total capacity. And they have not met that target. But for me, it's relatively comforting that part of the reason is the fact that there's increased maintenance. Uh, I know it's not a good thing, but uh, there is that consideration to take into account. 65 is is looking further and further away because the next target was 65%. So um, so it's, it is a struggle, it's still a struggle for ESCOM. Is that just a number on a piece of paper, that 65%, or are there potential repercussions for failing to meet this target, apart from political considerations? Well, ESCOM's shareholder is government. So um, probably if it was other shareholders in the private sector would say there there is, but I mean... I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen any consequences in the past. And in any case, ESCOM provides 95% of our supply. Therefore, there's not much that you can do, even from a regulator point of view. So we, we are stuck with what we have. What are your concerns about the supply situation as we start to head into autumn and winter? Obviously, during winter, there's always a, a higher demand relative to the supply. But we understand that ESCOM will start to ramp down their maintenance plan in line with the fact that there will be relatively higher demand. We hope that they continue on the path of showing a bit of improvement so that the situation is not too bad for our winter. We seem to be settling somewhere between stage two and three with a spike to stage four every once in a while. Do you think that's likely to be the trajectory or is there anything that could push us again to stage six as we witnessed earlier? We can never rule out stage six because we have intermittency in terms of uh, the performance of some of the generators. We've seen some consistency with a few, uh, but we still have that intermittency. So we need a longer trajectory or a long, longer trends to be able to see whether we can really reliably continue on a positive path. We are on a positive path, but it's still relatively small and we still need time to be able to observe whether that is sustainable or not. Khusi Moleshi, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Web at Midday.
Now, you might remember in last week's budget, the Minister of Finance, Enoch Godongwana, outlining South Africa's long-term tax policy and strategy, emphasizing the objectives of broadening the tax base, enhancing tax compliance, and improving administrative efficiency. So I guess the question is, is this being achieved? And if it is, optimally, what impact is this going to have on the fiscus? Louis Bote is with us now from the Tax Exchange and Control Practice at the Corporate and commercial law firm Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer. Louis, a very warm welcome to you. Very quickly, what are those measures that the minister was referring to? And more specifically, are they impacting positively on the overall efficiency of tax collection? Hi, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Um, yes, so the, 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 the measures the minister uh, was referring to, there are a number of them, and maybe I can just refer briefly to, briefly to two of them. Um, one being the modernization and, and rebuilding of SARS. Of course, uh, you and your listeners would know that pursuant to the Nugent Commission, a number of recommendations were made um, in terms of which the commission indicated uh, things that need, needed to be done to uh, address certain issues with SARS um, uh, to, to, uh, that, that had arisen in, in prior years. And so the one, one of the major things that was, was done, a, a good example of the rebuilding process is the what is the re-establishment of the SARS large business center to what it to what it was, which is essentially sort of a one-stop shop for companies with a certain level of income, uh, so that they can more easily resolve their their, their tax issues. And, and the rationale behind that being that they uh, they produce they generate high profits and therefore a mm. large amount of, of of revenue, and therefore one would want to enhance and improve efficiency from. Uh, that is the revenue that is collected from them. A second one that that has been done, which is which is more novel, is the so-called high net worth individuals unit, which which was set up uh, two or three years ago, and in terms of which essentially SARS is focusing on uh, wealthy individuals that have particularly local, but especially also offshore wealth structures, um, and where they believe that there might be risks of avoidance or very aggressive tax planning, for example, or evasion in the in the worst instances, and trying to to address and and curb that. So there are a number of measures. Um, a lot of funding had also been has also also been provided to SARS in the in the previous budget, and I think the fruits of that that showed in the last in the last year. Louis, what is utterly fascinating here is the commissioner was saying earlier that uh, they are now starting to use artificial intelligence in debt propensity modeling. Again, that is something which uh, will also be of benefit to the uh, to the fiscus and I guess also to SARS in the long term. Indeed, Jeremy, it, it, it most definitely will be. Um, if one if one looks at to maybe compare the, the debt aspect is newer, and just to maybe by way of analogy look at the, at the audit measure. Uh, audits are done on either a uh, typically on a risk and uh, randomised basis. So SARS would have had would have algorithms um, which which they use in order to detect uh, certain uh, risk areas or where they perceive a person might have been undercaring certain income. Uh, from the from from the debt side, we don't have exact details, of course, exactly of what this. What this debt modeling exactly exactly looks like, but obviously what was most likely what it would do is it would assist the the, the SARS debt management uh, department, which is responsible for debt collection, to assist them in targeting um, um, and identifying where 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 there are large outstanding debts for, mm. for a longer period of time, collecting it more more efficiently. And what we have also seen on the debt side is SARS making use of some of the broader uh, expansive powers that they have under legislation. 
to 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 collect taxes and and um, which which is which is which is encouraging. That's all well and good. So we might have the tools, but in the South African uh, dynamic, it's always going to be a challenge to broaden that tax base, in spite of the fact that the tax register has been expanded. I, I agree completely, Jeremy, and 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 it's, it's, it's precisely because of the fact that. Um, and, and I think your question is sort of hinting towards that is that in, in, a, in a limited economic growth environment, there is only so much that, that, that SARS can do. So, so SARS can look for, for instances and sectors, individuals uh, where there is, is a large scale non-compliance. But at, the, but at the end of the day, if, if, if there isn't an increase in growth, there won't be an increase in profits, there won't be an increase in, in, tax, in tax collections. So, so SARS has really has done a lot um, in the in the last year to improve efficiency, also including through the use of, of, of third-party data to try and collect wherever and, and wherever they can. But but yes, as you correctly say, there are limits um, as to what they can do. So, notwithstanding all of that, then what do you think the strategic focus for SARS needs to be in the coming year to meet the objectives that it set out? I think there's a lot of good groundwork that has been laid, um, and I think the focus areas that have been identified should should be should be built upon. One thing that is that is um, that they've done, for example, and, and which was announced in previous budgets, was the focus on so-called um, uh, transfer pricing. For example, transfer pricing referring to transactions, but typically in, in the multinational context, where goods and services are, are sold and, and exchanged across border. And where there, there, there tends to be some scope uh, for 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 base erosion or for or for profit shifting, um, and and what we have seen is that SARS has has focused on these these kind kind of orders. Well, of course, one wants SARS to to deal with taxpayers fairly and within the framework of, of of the legislation, but focusing on that is is one area. And I think another another good area. There are many we can mention, but but, but just, this just being two of them aside from the transfer pricing. The focus on, on on the illicit economy, um, which is also where we've seen the the expansion of the of the tax register, so is essentially finding uh, individuals and companies who should be paying tax, who should be registered for tax, which hadn't been, and then taking the appropriate steps to bring them within the tax net. I am going to leave it there, Louis Boita. Thank you very much indeed from the uh, law firm Cliff Decker Hoffman. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's switch our attention now from tax to provincial politics. And there is absolutely no doubt that KwaZulu-Natal is shaping up to be the main May 29 uh, election primary battlefield. And most notably, I would suggest, is the emergence of the Jacob Zuma-influenced MKV party. So how is all of this going to play out? And is there the potential for violence in the run-up to the end of May? Joining us now is political writer and commentator Sandili Swana. And first of all, Sandili, in terms of being a battleground, how significant is that in terms of KwaZulu-Natal? KwaZulu-Natal is a major battleground. Bear in mind that, uh, you know, you can reduce the struggle uh, to a simple a simple way of looking at it, which is to say the ANC in the last election, depending how you calculate it, give it 45-46% in the local government election. 
whether in the previous national government elections, previously, maybe 54, 57, whatever number you give them. But it's about 10% what these parties are fighting for. Mm. The DA and all the others are not trying to win the 50% of these. They are trying to win that difference that makes them above 50%. So it's not a very large number, actually. So that's the first thing. But then the question is, where does KZN fit into all of this? And I want to use some numbers that I took to one of the guys who studies these uh, election numbers quite a bit, mm. uh, Davi Scores. Now, Davi calculated an interesting number that in the 2021 election, where did the net result actually come from? The net result, because it, the ends actually went down, but where, where did it actually lose? So when you look at those numbers, the greatest contributor to the positive contributor was the Limpompo province at 225,000, then followed by the Eastern Cape at 206. Now, when you come to the ones that added negatively to that election, in other words, the, where the reductions actually came from, KZN, they lost 210. In Gauteng, they lost 370,000, that is 210,000. In Gauteng, they lost 370. In the Western Cape, they lost 440. When you've added all the provinces, they lost 453. And KZN was one of the contributors to that loss. So they were not growing positively in KZN. You remember, they even lost the actual metro of Devon, yes. uh, Tegwin. Now, another consideration, another set of numbers is that in that election, 20% of the votes for the ANC in favor of the ANC came from KZN, 20%. It was more than a million votes. The next biggest one was Gauteng. Both of those two biggest contributors are actually the same where they actually lost votes. It means that in their biggest markets, the two biggest markets that they have, they are actually losing votes. So, Sandini, if I, can, if, I can, if I can ask you then, mm-hmm. into this mix... Uh, you now have the emergence of the MKV party. How do you assess its chances and its impact? The impact, first of all, the impact of the MK party. The party is going to have a hell of an impact in the ANC. And we've always emphasized this so-called, I mean, journalists and businessmen talk things that are very difficult to handle. For instance, they say Cyril is consolidating his power in the in the ANC, this, that, and the other. Even if you win 60% and you lose 40% of the votes, and those 40% are a solid block, you have a problem. So the emergence of MK party means that all the disgruntled people, especially those who were in the 40%, whether it's the 40%, whatever percent of, of Mkize, Mkize, or in the NDZ, or others were aggrieved for other reasons by CR17 and so on and so forth, they now have a home to go, and they are going to go to that home. And the worst thing is that JZ is the biggest political factor in KZN, no matter who says why. And to the extent that MK has got JZ on their side, Jacob Zuma, mm. there is no single politician who can stand toe-to-toe with JZ in KZN. No one. So I am not saying that MK is going to win. Bear in mind that this is a contest for the ANC vote in the main. This is not about necessarily eating into the DA or eating into IFP per se. 
mainly the support for MK is going to come from the support of the ANC. Well, let's talk about Which the Encanto then, Free- Let's yeah. talk about the Encanto Freedom Party then, given its ability possibly to shape the election outcome in the province because of the strength that it is starting to show and the strategies it's deploying. How do you rate its chances? Is it going to be a factor in any way? No, IFP is probably, how can I say? So if you are to rate the factors, we take the ANC as a given, it's there, and they are the ones who've got something to lose or yes. something more to lose, let's put it like that. So so, so then we put them as a static factor on the side. And there are two top contenders, as call them kingmakers, call them what you want to call them. It will be JZ and the IFP. And the reason why these two factors are so strong is that the politics of KZN, and somebody wrote somewhere about this, it's very difficult to, to, to say this without sounding provocative, but they are very culturally driven. In fact, you find that um, there are set, there's a certain degree to which even the white people in KZN subscribe to some aspect of the Zulu royalty and Zulu culture and whatever, you know. So those are politics, and that is where Zuma and the IFP are the strongest. The DA does not have that cultural flavor. Right a strong cultural flavor like Zuma has, MK Party has, and Ingata has. So and, those are and, the two potential And Sandili Swana, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. Unfortunately, time <laughs> is always against us on the program. But thank, thank you so you. much indeed for the very crisp analysis. I appreciate it. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. I want to stay with politics and the African National Congress goes into this year's general election in a no-win situation, says Mbazima Shiloa, former Premier of Gauteng and the former General Secretary of Kasatu. He writes about the party's inability to own up to its failures. He joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Mr Shiloa, so you've pointed out the ANC's inability, as you say, to own up to its own failures. Can you elaborate then on how you think this has impacted on voter trust and credibility ahead of May 29. Yes, good day. I think I'm really making uh, several points. The first one is that uh, people are being unfair on the ANC in saying it cannot showcase its uh, successes. When at the same time, the opposition spends a lot of time pointing out its, uh, its failures. My view is that it it is right to point out to its successes, but where I find it a shortcoming is that while it would say there are areas in which we have not done well, it does not say why those things have not been done well. And own up to say, here, if you look at issues of state capture, it was not people from outside of the ANC, it was people from inside the ANC. If it comes to what has happened with water in Guiani, it was not people from uh, the opposition, it was uh, uh, ourselves. Having done that, to then say, this is what we're going to do uh, 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 moving forward. I think then in that way, people are able to say, okay, maybe we hear you, maybe we should give you another opportunity. But where you simply make it like, it was somebody else's mistake. I think sometimes it makes people be a little mm. bit 
Senegal. And do you think that this is arrogance and uh, invincibility as far as the party is concerned? Or do you think there's a genuine fear of losing votes? No, no, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's arrogant. I think the ANC understand very well the anger of the, of the voter, which is why they would have been, uh, even during the local government, have been going out to say to people, we made mistakes here. I think it's more the point of, even as you self-introspect, you want to ensure that you don't self-introspect publicly such that the opposition takes your own words and put them in a in a in a billboard so kind of like that's why i'm saying it's them and if it does damned if it doesn't and that's the nature of politics though for any party is to extol your virtues and and successes and try to hide away all the negativity <laughs> indeed uh, but also the point i'm making is that uh, Yes, it's uh, the, the ANC. It's easy because we're talking at a at a national level, but I think we need also to be able to look at, in terms of the the DA, the EFF, and others on their offering. Yes, let the ANC extol its virtues, hide uh, the bad. Uh, they have got the right to point them out. But I'm arguing that pointing out what people know already is not going to garner you votes. Saying to people the ANC is corrupt is not something new. They know that. To say there is load shedding, there is hunger, there's inequality, there's unemployment. What people want to know is that, look, okay, we know these fellows are corrupt. What is your offering? What are you going to do? How are you going to change it? In a manner which is not like a slogan, same as I use an example for jobs. If you really look at all of those parties, you it, it does not appear like they realize that more than 11 million people are out of job. I mean, to say we'll offer 2 million jobs, as an example, over five years, when there's likely to be about 3 million people mm. entering the labor market, it means even if you were successful, there'll still be another million people, new ones, in addition to the current uh, 11 million that will not have job. So and that's B- really Shalawa, let me Let me ask you one last question, and you're a veteran politician in South Africa. Uh, given what you've just said to me, do you believe the ANC can get 50% or over uh, come May 29? I don't know. I don't want to be uh, working on prediction. But my view is that, look, this... Uh, election is going to be fought at different level. The one level is going to be three areas in which I call them battle provinces. Houting, KZN, and the Western Cape for the DA. And if I was the ANC, I would try to hold my fort here, but ensure that in those areas like Eastern Cape, Limpopo, Mpumalanga, I don't just win with a 50%. I go into 70, 80. Because in that way, even if you may lose one or two provinces, but you are still able to make it on 50% plus one. All right. Mbazima Shalawa, thank you very much indeed. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news.
I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks, and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after seven. MoneyWeb now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And let's finish the program with some fairly staggering figures. The current sports market in Africa is worth more than 12 billion US dollars and is expected to reach over 20 billion by 2035. That's according to new research by management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. And with me now is Tony Simpson, global head of sport at the company. Tony, what are the key factors in and welcome to you driving this growth in Africa? Uh, Thank you uh, for having me on the programme. Look, one of the key factors and the greatest asset Africa has is its people and the demographic age of its people. So a a continent with 50% of the population being under 25 is is a huge growth area for not only sport, but the whole entertainment and media sector. Are we doing enough or is the continent doing enough to capitalise on this? A key issue, actually, the continent is slightly behind on this work is the whole governance and structure behind sport and entertainment. Africa's greatest assets at this stage are its athletes. And many of them are playing in the European leagues and in North American leagues in basketball and uh, the NFL. And really, the reason, one of the reasons for that is the lack of governance and the lack of structure, the way that money flows in and around the African sporting sector. So what type of structure and governance are you talking about and how do you improve it? I think you improve it by uh, creating a, uh, when I say governance structure, we improve it by making sure that uh, the boards and the organisations who run sports on behalf of the people are, are opaque, that the money goes into the infrastructure and it goes into players on a regular basis and we can create a sustainable professional sporting class in Africa. At the moment it's very much seen as a conveyor belt for up and out but that's ridiculous because you know the world's greatest athletes are, are from this continent or the greatest talent is from this continent and if you look at cycling as well as basketball as well as soccer there's only one way this continent's going and that is up the type of jobs that are generated by the sports sector beyond the players themselves is also critical uh, do you think that uh, that's something that we're ignoring and uh, if so do you think that uh, these employment opportunities can be built upon and made sustainable that's a great point and thank you for asking look i think there's a huge opportunity for uh consultants for uh, you know uh financial professionals for 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 people to work within the sporting sector both as architects both as people who can actually you know financially look at the modeling aspects that's needed here so this is not only just going to grow the sporting sector it's going to grow the professional sector of the of, of the country as well. And if you look at the the entertainment sector in Africa, it could be worth you know trillion dollars going forward. Uh, so it's a big sector, and uh, you know there's no there's no accident that the biggest telecom companies in the, in, in the region and the banks are putting some of their sponsorship and partnership money behind the sporting industry. And in order to do that, we need professionals to actually manage and produce and deliver these great events. And just a final one, then, uh, as far as South Africa is concerned, and it- its contribution to the continent sports market. Um, is there any further role or any way in which this country can capitalize on that, uh, that continental trend that you've spoken about? 
South Africa is the North Star in many ways of Africa. You know, they've already hosted a Cricket World Cup. They've hosted a, a World Cup, uh, as, as you know, many years ago. So South Africa has the infrastructure. It has the, uh, it has the numbers. And it has, in many ways, some of the, uh, uh, the, the professional discipline to deliver the events we're talking to. But South Africa is one of four or five of the big, big uh, beer moths, uh, commercial areas in the continent. And it can't do it on its own. And it needs to look to its uh, partners within the continent rather than looking to Australia, New Zealand or, or, or the Western Hemisphere. Tony Simpson, thank you very much indeed. Global Head of Sports at Oliver Wyman. And uh, as we end the program today on our Monday online poll, uh, we spoke about the ANC promising 2.5 million work opportunities over the next five years. Doable, I asked. More unemployment is on the horizon or pie in the sky. Half of all our respondents saying that more joblessness is on the cards. Today, new load-shedding optimism has been expressed. That was our lead story today. Do you believe it's improving? Do you believe this is simply government rhetoric, or the final option is don't touch me on my inverter. Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also our LinkedIn page, and I'll bring you the results of the poll on the Wednesday edition of the program. MoneyWeb at midday. We're live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.